Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Yet Another White Girl podcast. This week, we're finally allowed to drink legally. I'm your host woman, drinks craft beer to fit in with men, Hannah Varrell. Joining me is her parents let her drink wine with dinner, Caroline O'Donoghue. I think of mama and papa as my peers, Hannah, not my parents. And still drinks Prosecco even though it's not 2015 anymore, Alexandra Haddo. Please do not take this as a prompt to buy me Prosecco-themed gifts or throw pillows, please and thank you. How about some Prosecco-themed Prosecco? Yeah, that'll do. This week we're talking jokes, salt and about a little French man. So by the end of it, you'll be able to make a mean joke about short people and then rub salt into the wound. Which makes the wound all the more delicious. So, Hannah, for your segment this week, you're doing Sky Captain on the World of Tomorrow. Is that correct? Uh, no. Oh, sorry. Hang on. I've lost my script. You're doing Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Uh, no. I know you're doing an Angelina Jolie movie that nobody has seen. Oh, that's right. I'm doing Salt. Oh. oh. You should have fringe in that. So, Hannah, tell us all about Salt, the, na- the non-Angelina Jolie kind. <laughs> Uh, so when I was thinking about what to do this week, I kind of just realised that salt is the perfect dumb women topic because it's absolutely everywhere and it's been around for ages and we use it all the time. And I really don't have any idea how it actually gets onto a table from where it's made. Is it a rock? Yeah, definitely a rock. Yeah. Also in the sea. I'm going to say it's like technically a fossil fuel, is it? I don't think it's a fuel. It's a fuel for deliciousness. Fuels my (laughs) shitty meals that I make at home. (laughs) Fuels the 20 nuggets that we just ate before we started recording this. Oh, they'd be nothing without salt. So you're kind of right to say rocks because it does come from rocks, but how does it get from rocks into the sea? Um, On like salt plains, salt mines, salt... um, Yeah, salt mines is definitely something I've heard. And and also there's like water and it evaporates on like a flat surface and then they're left with salt. Basically, yes, there's salt in rocks or sodium. And what happens is when it rains, it kind of dissolves some of the salts and then it all gets washed into like the sea and that's why the sea is salty. Oh, nice. Oh. Not because it's filled with whale semen. No. That's what it that. says on Blue Planet 2, I believe. So really? someone should really tell them that before that goes out. So as well as uh, sea salt, though, there's also rock salt, like you were saying, salt mines. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of like a normal mine. Like you just kind of dig in and get it out and then, I guess clean it up a bit yeah classic mine mine, yeah. mine classic yeah mine basic <laughs> exactly but you know um salt flats like you were saying alex yeah so that works by you have these like really shallow ponds and you fill them up with seawater and then the seawater just sort of slowly evaporates and leaves the salts um guess how long it takes for the salt crystals to form in that 
10,000 years. I'm going to go rogue here and say 25 years. Seriously, guys? No. Oh. <laughs> it's, uh, it can be, I, I saw somewhere online, from three to five years. Oh. Which isn't as long as, I thought you'd say it would be like two weeks. Oh, no. Because th- whenever you talk about sort of like world geology and like, geography yeah. and stuff, it's always like, oh, this takes a million years yeah. for this creature to grow a thumb. Yeah. Like, <laughs> But this is like, this is how they make sea salt, like, you know, molden sea salt that you have if you buy nice salt. And I do. So, yeah, so it, it can take years for that, for that, for those crystals to form. And then once they've formed, they sort of like sink to the bottom. And the other thing I was wondering was like, how is that salt not just really dirty then? If mm. it's just kind of like in a flat and like... Yeah, who's washing the salt? Yeah, and it all gets like rained on and stuff. Does and it like, get bleached like flour? Is that why it's white? Uh, no, I don't think so, actually. Oh. Uh, maybe some of them do. Do they sieve it, like, on an industrial scale? Well, they kind of... So, typically, they'd have, like, a kind of base layer of salt, and then they'd have new salt that forms and then falls down from the top of the water would sit above that. So then when they rake it up, that's the layer that they're raking up, so that's cleaner. Oh! And then they'll get that out every so often, and then, like, yeah, rinse it out, dry it out. How do they rinse it, though? Because when you put salt in... Water, it dissolves. Mm. Yeah, I don't know, because I saw... I was hoping you wouldn't ask that, because I saw, <laughs> I saw a video where it said, they wash it in brine. But brine is salt water, isn't it? Yeah. So... But maybe... Also, shit if you get in your clothes. Maybe if you wash it in brine, it... I don't know, it's like like a... You know, when you vaccinate yourself with a virus, for a virus. Maybe yeah. it's like... Which we learned in a polio episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe the water's like too saturated with salt, so it can't dissolve more yeah. salt in it. That'll be it. Yes, cracked it. Solved it. So glad we figured out salt, guys. Yeah. <laughs> the world has been waiting. Where is all the salt? Um, actually, like, all over the place. Oh, like, okay. everywhere, so... That's good, because if one place had it, we'd be waging war on them. The Great Salt War. <laughs> but no, there did used to be loads of wars about uh, about salt. Oh, wow. It was, like, a huge commodity um, in history, because... When you had salt, you could eat it. Obviously, it made things taste better. And we need salt in our bodies, just to, like keep everything ticking. Um, but also, you can use it to preserve food in. So you can preserve, mm. like oh, I don't know, yeah. like your deer or your fish or whatever yeah. in salt. So if you have it, like that's so so valuable. And yeah, like salt wars is a huge thing. Like genuinely, people waged war over salt. Yeah, it kind of makes complete sense because if you live in an all agricultural society and the crops aren't producing food for like so many months of the year you need to be able to have like food stores and in order to have food stores you need to preserve your meat and you need salt for that yeah exactly and you didn't have fridges and things so you'd have to have salt and I feel like I kind of had slightly heard of salt wars before but like sounds very history channel doesn't it it sounds very like big bookie (laughs) daddums the salt wars yeah it's like wolf bitzer not to be confused with great freezer wars of the 80s is that a thing no No, I was just picturing, like, how are we going to keep our food frozen this winter? Janice has got a smeg. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but yeah, so salt can be found in lots of different places. Uh, Like we were saying, Malden. That's just kind of in East London. I thought it was in Essex. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Oh yeah. yeah, same thing, you know. London, <laughs> you're, you're London is half of England now. Um, <laughs> Why is it the most expensive when it's from down the bloody road? Yeah. I don't know, because they, they say it's nice. Oh. What so. about um, 
that uh, that salt that Giselle eats that is now in all the health food shops, <gasps> pink Himalayan, Himalayan salt. Himalayan pink salt. Yeah. Oh, that actually comes in big blocks. That's a rock salt. Ooh. Yeah, and you can get it in a big block and then you can heat up the block and like fry a steak <gasps> on it. Shit, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a really like a cool new dish at the moment called um, salt baked fish right. where they put it in a block of salt and the salt cooks it. Oh yeah, oh. I've had I've had food like that. So yeah. I went to a dinner party once where basically the host put loads of chicken in salt and lemon juice and just left it there all day and it was just cooked in that. What? It's wow. apparently what like um like people in South America did for years when they were going like their version of the pasty, just like a bag full of chicken bits with lime and salt. Yeah, because you can do that with fish, can't you? Yeah, mm. it, it self cooks ceviche. Yeah, delicious. Very interesting. Very good. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I found out about the location of salts is that lots of uh, towns in the UK, uh, which end in witch, like Norwich or Nantwich or Leftwich, um, the witch part of it means that it was a town that had salt. Oh, oh I did wow. not know that. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? It's a way that there's not a place called Saltwich. Oh, no, because that mean, that would be salt salt. That would yeah, be like... Yeah, a thoroughly unimaginative yeah. town. Fine. <laughs> we have salt and salt. <laughs> Our chips are very seasoned. <laughs> yeah. um, have you ever heard the rumour as well that the word salary comes from the Latin word for salt? <gasps> no, no, I haven't heard that. It's not true. Oh. Well, on one Wikipedia page, it's true. On another Wikipedia page, it says it's a persistent modern claim and it's baseless. So, uh, yeah. Shit. The other thing about fancy salts, uh, do you think they add more flavour than table salts? Yes. I don't know. I would say a different flavour. I have got some Himalayan pink salt in my cupboard. I'm now going to try it now. Oh, really? Apparently, uh, it's scientifically proven somehow that if you cook with salt, it destroys the flavour anyway. So although there is a difference in flavour between like sea salt or rock salt and table salt, which is basically just kind of like chemical salt, um, and often it will have anti-caking agents in it as well, which will make it taste a bit chemically sometimes. But apparently, yeah, cooking cooking with sea salt takes all the flavour out. Um, so actually, the best thing to do is just sprinkle it on top afterwards. Mm, but yeah. uh, there's sort of varying ideas about whether it imparts flavour or not. Maybe it's just something jazzy that Giselle eats to make her life seem less boring. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it, It's one of those um, classic things that's very insulting if you were to salt a dish in front of the chef, right? Insulting? Uh, yeah no it is though because like every chef would kind of salt it to their standards and then you come along and you're like no I want more salt I know more than you about how good this food should be hand me the salt but everyone has like different kind of salt levels like different tolerances to salt Mm -hmm. and it's just you just sort of get used to it don't you it's sort of frequently very demonised health wise isn't it salt yeah definitely yeah what's that about why is it bad for you Oh, I don't is know. it bad for you? Probably just because oh, it's nice. Just, yeah, just nice. Anything nice is bad. Nice. And you know that sometimes, like, if you go in the sea or whatever, if you have an injury, you can, like, wash it with salt water. Mm-hmm. Why do you reckon that is? <gasps> um, because it's a... Draws out the impurities? Yeah, sort of. It, it can kill... It kills a lot of bacteria, um, which is also why it can be used to preserve food, because it draws out moisture from the food. If you like put a load of salt on a fish, it will draw out the moisture oh. and it will kill a lot of bacteria, and that's why it keeps for longer. Oh. And so the same thing is kind of happening if it goes on your skin, it's killing the bacteria. And that's why it's quite good as a, a wound wash. Mm. So that's kind of a very basic, brief and quick 
look into salt sort of barely scratched the surface. I think the history of salt is really interesting and might be something I look at another time in full detail. Mm. Could be your um, next book, Caroline. The Price of Salt. The Price of Salt. <laughs> a book that's already been written about... No, never mind. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about Patricia Highsmith and being a lesbian, but... <laughs> it's not worth it. Let's just move on. <laughs> I'll finish with a line from uh, beyondtheshaker.com. To say the history of salt is essentially the history of the world is not an overstatement. <gasps> Some call salt a primordial condiment, and rightfully so. Ooh. See, I was going to ask you whether you considered salt to be a condiment or a preservative, like in the way that people um, argue about whether tights are trousers or underwear. Oh yeah, or Jaffa cakes, or cakes or biscuits. Yeah. So do you, like, well, first so, off, no one cares. First but off, no also, one cares. But, uh, both, isn't it? Yeah. You so someone's not going to be like, oh, what's your favorite condiment? And you're not going to say salt. Like, you're I think say, it's a condiment in the modern world because nobody's like, oh, remember to put that beef steak in the salt bag. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you That's are true. like, let's put a bit of salt on the beef to make it taste nice. Yeah, that is a conversation normal people have. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't I informative just then? Don't worry though, you can have a little sit down and a free digestive biscuit next because your work has paid for you to come to a Travelodge function room near you for our Women Who Code Mixer. Yay! This week's Women Who Code Mixer was inspired by a real life dumb woman, our own Alexandra Hatto. Hello. Alex wrote into our WhatsApp group the other day wanting to know what tethering was. Yes, I did, because the cafe I was in had very rubbish Wi-Fi. I thought maybe I needed to chain myself to the railings outside, but no. In a statement of feminism. Yes. I'll tether myself to this bloody cafe. <laughs> Until you get good Wi-Fi, I, yeah. I will not come in. I'll be here morning, noon and night. Um, well, tethering is actually very simple, Alex. 4G.co.uk tells me that tethering is the term used for... Is that a real website? Yes. <laughs> it sounds like it sells corgis. What? For, oh, 4G for corgis. <laughs> Tethering is the term used for hooking a laptop or any other Wi-Fi enabled device to a smartphone and using the latter's mobile network connection to connect to the internet, which kind of makes sense. So essentially your phone can become a portable Wi-Fi hotspot. So if there's no Wi-Fi connection, it can be a convenient way to connect a laptop or tablet to the internet. Um, it offers a fast and reliable internet connection and is often more secure than standard Wi-Fi as well. Oh, so in a way, tethering is a bit like having a husband in the 1950s, I think. It's secure, portable, and it can connect you to stuff which you might otherwise be unable to access. Oh. Like a uh, job on the stage. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> bank account. But we are modern women, so while we can still tether husbands if we want, feminism has provided us with Wi-Fi, which means it's becoming less and less necessary. Yeah, tethering is a bit like the BBC, isn't it? Like, it seems like it's such an amazing achievement, and then you realise that you're actually paying for it. Like, so it's not that good a deal. Like, yeah. I'm actually paying for tethering. It's part of my... I'm using my data. And I'm, like, paying for the BBC. I'm paying for David Attenborough's ridiculous lifestyle. No, I think it's it's like those bloody graze boxes, honest to God, that promise you a free box, but only once you pay for a box. And then you realise that the dehydrated wasabi peas do not count as a snack. No. Oh, absolutely not. Never. I accidentally once got embroiled into what I can only imagine is the same as having a very serious addiction with the graze boxes in that I was sort of in, like involved in paying for them for six months. And I think I had about three within that time. 
Oh, that's oh, the yes. worst. I don't know how they do it. I'd love to know what percentage of a graze box actually constitutes this food. Like how much of it can actually be digested <laughs> by your system and then doesn't come out whole in your poo. Yeah. <laughs> I think next they're just going to be doing like bits of graze box in a graze box. <laughs> yeah, they're selling them individually now. Have you seen that? They're really trying to push that angle. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're really yeah. into them. It's all fibre, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, great. Well, now that we've thoroughly misunderstood a fairly simple and useful piece of technology, let's move on and forget all about it. Unleash your tether. Hurrah! So, an English woman, an Irish woman and a second generation Scotswoman all walk into a podcast room and the Irish woman says, I'm going to talk about jokes! Yay! That was that was a joke format for our next section, which is about jokes. Uh, everyone knows that the only thing that will make a joke more funny is explaining the fuck out of it. Ah, uh, yeah, like the Germans did in the war. It's true. Well, they explained jokes during the war in the paper. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah. They used to say like, "This is funny because." Oh no! Oh, really? I wow. think that's, that's where where the stereotype of Germans not having a sense of humor comes from. Oh god! Well, I think the the biggest gift that the um, Simpsons gave to the internet was um, Reindeer Wolfcastle saying that is the joke (laughs) (laughs) every time someone misunderstands me on Twitter it's just like oh let's find my Reindeer Wolfcastle that is the joke there you go I have told you there is a Twitter account called yes that's the joke as well which you can (laughs) add if you need help be like you need help you need add yes that's the joke (laughs) Uh, that's good I love jokes. I love jokes. Um, what's your favourite, like, classic joke? Oh. Do you have one? Oh, I have a really good one. Oh, go on. I have to credit my friend Sarah for this, I think. Oh, shit, no, it was her. Well, actually, before you even get into it, that is one of the key parts of what makes a joke a joke. Um, a famous joke historian called Gershon Legman. Not even sure if it's his real name. I mean, you've got to be a joke historian if that's your name. Yeah. <laughs> Said um, that uh, one of the crucial things about a joke is that nobody ever tells a joke for the first time. It's, <gasps> always, it's a piece of secondhand knowledge. It's like a folklore tale. Like oh, it's, yeah. it's, it is folk art. That's what a joke is. So it's okay that I'm stealing someone else's work and passing it off as my own? It absolutely is, yes. Great. Okay, well, here's the joke. What's the difference between a lobster with breast implants and an old bus station? Oh, um... I don't know, tell me. One is a crusty bus station and the other is a busty crustacean. Oh, I love it. I love it. I know my dad's favourite classic joke. Um, a man walks up to the... A delivery man walks up to a house, knocks on the door, and a man answers and he says, all right, I've got a parrot here for Mr Poirot. And he says, it is pronounced Poirot. And he says, all right, I've got a Poirot here for Mr Poirot. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wordplay. loves it. I um I came across this joke today and like it's one of those jokes that I only find funny because I imagined it in a kind of a like an old New Yorker voice. Oh yeah. So I'm gonna tell it to you in an old New Yorker kind of voice. <laughs> okay, over a coffee. So I went to my doctor and I told him my penis is burning. And he says, That means somebody's talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> doctor Doctor, I feel like a pair of curtains. Pull yourself together, man. <laughs> <laughs> jokes are great man they're so so good um, and now let's completely talk them to death until they're not funny anymore Yay, cool. um, so the definition of a joke is a display of humour in which words are used within a specific and well defined narrative structure to make people laugh <laughs> you sound like you're doing the beginning of like the shittest best man speech ever yeah. <laughs> the, def- the definition of a joke the Oxford English Dictionary the definition describes- of my friend Andrew <laughs> The definition of a marriage between two people who love each other. 
Which is a fucking joke, am I right, Les? <laughs> Such so on the stack, do. <laughs> um, so, okay. Yeah, fine, guys. I looked things up this week, unlike everybody else here. Probably well. going to be reading off their phones for the rest of this fucking episode. Wait till you hear my section on Gérard Depardieu. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when do you think the... Um, the first joke. What what is the oldest joke? How how old do you think it is and where do you think it's from? Must be the ancient Egyptians did a hieroglyph that was like um, <laughs> an owl and then someone in a field and then like, an owl and a pussycat in a pea green boat. No, I think it was like, why did the diplodocus cross the road to reach a leaf on a tree? <laughs> no? It's like animate dinosaurs telling each other jokes. <laughs> yeah. God, they were such an advanced civilization. Um, actually, the oldest joke in the world is from 1900 BC. Uh, it's from Bronze Age Sumeria. Go on. First, like, okay, guess what it's about. Oh, it's probably about, like, either taking a shit or having sex. <laughs> I was going to say, like, business. <laughs> it's about farting, guys. It's Yay! a fart joke. It is a fart joke. Um, and the exact phrasing is, what has never happened since time immemorial? A young wife has not farted on her husband's lap. <laughs> oh my God, it's so true in today. I know. So um, you guys, you, do you know the comedian Jim Gaffigan? He's this really brilliant American comedian. Um, and he sort of did, as one of his shows, he tried to secretly put in some of the world's oldest jokes. And for that one, he was just like, do you ever notice how a girl never farts when you first get together with her? Yeah. Because <laughs> that's exactly what the that's joke exactly is. That's exactly the same. Like, people have been making different versions of that joke forever. Oh like God, women have been holding in their farts. <laughs> Since the Since the dawn of time, women have been holding in their farts, and that's both amazing and very depressing. Yeah. yeah. We've won the right to vote, but we're still not farting in front of our spouses. We don't have the spouses. right to fart. <laughs> we do not have the right to fart. Um, so, a joke sort of needs certain things in order to work. The first thing is framing. So, according to psychologists, you need to make it very clear that you're making a joke before you make one because you have to sort of issue a social contract between you and the listener that everything that you say after this point, they cannot hold you morally responsible for, which is something we've totally lost in the era of Twitter. Oh, my God, yeah. 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 And it's happening a bit in stand-up as well. And I sometimes, I'm quite bad at that because I talk like I'm talking to my friends sometimes on stage Mm -hmm. and people don't know when I'm setting the joke up and then when I'm going into... Yeah. I'm telling the joke. I think it's very interesting because I think comedy... I honestly think that there's like a, it's a golden age of comedy right now because people have so many different ways of expressing comedy, like podcasts. Um, but uh, it has made comedy much more naturalistic. So you almost never get people saying like, oh, an Englishman, an Irishman and a Scotsman walk into a bar or yeah. have you heard the one about the... or the like yeah, that, yeah. that kind of 1950s, 1960s thing doesn't really exist anymore. I think just because people are learning to be more naturalistic about their jokes. Yeah. So, okay, that's the first thing that a joke needs is framing. You need to make it clear that you are making a joke. Um, the second thing it needs is characters. It needs stock characters that everybody recognises. And this goes back to the first ever joke book of all time, which was an ancient Greek text oh. called Philo- Philogelus. I'm sure that's wrong. Translates as banter. Banter. <laughs> the banter book. <laughs> um, but that had like very stock characters. So there was the drunk, the miser, the kind of the, the braggadocious person, the sex-starved woman, uh, someone with bad breath also came up a lot, and the egghead. Oh. So the Greeks actually had the word egghead, but I don't think it really meant nerd. It sort of meant just like person who was just didn't quite get it kind of thing. Oh, like a dunce. Like a, like kind of, yeah. Um, but like 
they would almost be like a scholar, but they wouldn't quite get it. Okay. So like a classic egghead joke would be um, an egghead was on a sea voyage when a big storm blew up, causing all of his slaves, slaves, he had slaves, to weep in terror. Don't cry, he consoled them. I have freed you all in my will. Uh, so it's very like he's like he like grasps certain things but he doesn't grasp others yeah. and that's very much the character the protagonist character we always see in a joke and the most important character in a joke is the butt of the joke so this is I think another thing that gets very confused in the sort of modern age of comedy because we're kind of living in a in a really interesting time where people's sort of like have more of a voice than they ever did before which means that we don't just let like horrible racist jokes slide anymore do you know what I mean like yeah. there, there used to be a context where that was just be accepted but now we're sort of reaching this place slowly where it's like no we don't do that anymore um, but at the same time we always need to have a butt of every joke right yeah. so mm-hmm. uh, actually uh, Viv Groskop did this brilliant series at the BBC where she um, investigated uh, comedy in Russia and what comedy was like during the revolution when it was so hard to express yourself when like basically jokes were their own kind of black market because if you got reported for any kind of behaviour that spoke out against the communist party you yeah. could be killed so like telling a joke was like a really like transgressive act and um, they said that like the, the one of their famous butts of their joke it was like their David Cameron character I can't remember what his name was but he was like minister for agriculture and he just looked like a pig and he was always <laughs> and he was just always kind of getting it wrong and like he was always photographed next to pigs and he looked like a pig and he was just like so funny um, and people loved like making him the butt of everything and he was like this great target for satire and when he eventually resigned they someone said like look you can take our bread you can take our everything but just don't take away him yeah <laughs> like he's sort of everything to us really like because I think the most important and interesting thing about jokes is that it provides that valve for society doesn't it you know like if, yeah. you, if you can't joke about something you're fucked do you know what I mean? can imagine if you had a prime minister and a government cabinet that were decent and knew what they were doing <laughs> well maybe that's what the Americans are up to like having a really like gracious lovely authentic president for yeah. a long time like okay oh, yeah. it's just boring someone we can laugh now. at yeah um, and another important thing that a joke needs is context so that's the reason that most jokes in that ancient Greek banter book don't make sense anymore because they can mean completely different things contextually like a huge amount of ancient Greek jokes are about lettuce what? They're about, yeah they're about lettuce but we still have lettuce we still like have now. lettuce, but back then, lettuce was considered to be an aphrodisiac, even though it's not. And so <laughs> every time that you made a joke about lettuce, it was about like about your boner or or whatever. It was, it was like a <laughs> oh, sexy, like dirty that. joke. The only way in which lettuce is an aphrodisiac is if the, it was because you're so fucking bored eating lettuce that you go and fuck someone. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird. It was like, you know, a head of lettuce wasn't as funny as saying like two leaves of lettuce. Do you know what I mean? It's like that very like specific phrasing of a joke where some things are just funnier than others and you don't really know why, you know? Yeah. So I think that's quite funny. And it also makes me think that so much of our comedy now, it's very, because our news cycle moves so quickly, it's very based on like what's happening here and now. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's absolutely. Like, when, you, when you hear a comedian mention Brexit or Tinder now, my heart just is sinks because I'm like, oh, yeah. bored of Brexit. Tinder's been going for ages now. Completely. Like, you know. Yeah, and it's it's funny because I think that um, a lot of comedians do find that they get like a quick laugh 
when they like mention something that like, oh yeah, Alexa, I have one of those. Or they're stupid, but like nobody's gonna care about an Alexa joke in a week in a year. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it means that we don't really have timeless jokes as much as we used to. So not that many have actually survived, which I think is kind of sad. And then the ultimate thing that a joke needs in order for it to exist, more important than context, characters, setting, is a punchline. Yeah. And scientists have sort of like, in in those kind of big, great, grand questions about like what makes human human and like the ability to understand a punchline is, is one of them. You know what I mean? Oh. So, because like it's quite complicated because essentially every joke sort of exists on every like classic joke. It's like, I'm going to tell you one thing and you're going to accept that to be the reality and then I'll tell you a second thing that turns it around. And you have to sort of understand a lot of things at once in order to like really get a joke. Yeah. Um, so, like it's it's operating a lot of different parts. It's like memory and reflex and the re- like the reflex to laugh, but then put your hand over your face, and be like, oh god, no, that's really bad. I can't laugh at that. That's like a very emotionally intelligent thing that separates us from like everything else, really. Yeah, it's really strange. Yeah. No other animal has a sense of humor. I don't know. I see my dog smelling her own fart sometimes, and I think she gets a lot out of it. <laughs> that's the other thing. I really sound like I've got like a tirade against Germans, but I don't. Um, but I met a lot of German guys um, when I was away that said that they like a lot of jokes in English because we have a lot of wordplay. We have a lot mm-hmm. of double meaning, double entendre. You can't really do double entendre that much in German because everything has such a specific word. Mm. Oh, interesting. There's one word for every single thing, every single type of thing, a feeling, a... Yeah, like puns really depend on there being like multiple meanings for different words and stuff. And actually, uh, there is this is a bit like your thing earlier on about salt coming from a different etymology. Uh, People think that uh, pun comes from the word pundit, which uh, comes from a Sanskrit word. And and puns are very like common in Sanskrit because like English, there's a lot of double meanings and that kind of stuff. So it's really rich in that. And it means um, sort of to make clear. You know what I mean? Yeah. So... It's sort of a play on clarity is a pun. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, you, yeah. You think you accept what it means, something means, but actually you, you don't. It's yeah, something yeah, else. yeah. Um, God, we've really talked this humour thing to death. Um, <laughs> we've explained it to you. Uh, another thing that I thought was really interesting was um, so many of like these great cultural movements began as jokes. Like I really think that you can't have a robust political movement without humour being attached to it. Oh, like, yeah. Which is, I mean, I know we like take the piss out of feminism a lot, but like sometimes I think when I see like so many people who are just so upset all the time, I'm like, oh God, like if we can't laugh at this, we'll die. Do you know what oh, I mean? Oh, yeah. yeah. We can't laugh yeah. about Harvey Weinstein. We will die thinking about how many Harvey Weinsteins there are out there, you yeah, know? Yeah, and yeah. I really believe that. Um, so, like during the anti war movement, Make Love Not War, it started off as a joke. It was like, right. yeah, fuck, and, you know, just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. everybody fuck, blah. and yeah. like, now it's like, we can't even separate it from it from the statement, because it just seems like a very like, oh, that's what that era was about, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I always thought that was just like completely sincere. Yeah, no, it started off as just a total like, nah, wasn't everyone just fucking the road instead, like, yeah. you know what I mean? Also, it fits well onto signs. It does. Yeah. <laughs> like, typographically, it's like very yeah. satisfying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But just to round off my uh, segment on jokes, the comedian Jim Gaffigan, who I mentioned early on, who used um, the ancient Greek jokes in his act, he said that the lettuce jokes didn't work, but when he replaced lettuce for kale, everybody laughed. Because everybody loves kale jokes. So actually, we haven't moved on from the Greeks at all, guys. We're still just laughing about leaves. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm kind of feeling like you're treading on my toes this week because, as you and everyone else knows, I am the uh, un français diable woman of uh, this little <laughs> menage à toi. Ah, oui, oui. Uh, vous, vous êtes. Uh, yes. <laughs> you're so good at accents, it makes me think that you're good at languages also. <laughs> anyway, my point was you're doing a, a French person ah, uh, this oui. semaine. I am. Uh, that is an awful accent. Here we go. It is French. I am doing Napoleon. Now, what do you know about Napoleon? Uh, Josephine! <laughs> yes, which I didn't realise was connected. Oh, I have a great Napoleon fact, actually. Go on. Um, so, you know, Napoleon syndrome is like, you know... Short man syndrome. Short man syndrome, syndrome essentially. Apparently, that wasn't named after Napoleon at all. It was named after his dog, who was also called Napoleon, and who was a Dachshund. And he used to, on the island that Napoleon was exiled to, he used to, like, pick fights with all the big wild dogs. And he was, like, a little Dachshund, and they'd call it Napoleon syndrome, because he'd oh, pick fights with big so, dogs. But Napoleon was short, wasn't he? Well, you've just Napoleoned me because you've taken my stuff <laughs> and you've made it better. <laughs> um, yeah, Napoleon syndrome. Uh, I didn't read the bit about the dog, but um, it's ba- basically I feel like Napoleon was the first ever sort of smear campaign before Monica Lewinsky um, <laughs> because uh, the British were actually very scared that he was very popular with the common man. Um, so they kind of sort of put all this stuff out there to try and make him seem he was he was like five foot five um which, which for, the, for the time for the time was not that sure it was it was actually fairly decent um in the 18th century um and also napoleon was actually born in corsica um but it was under french rule oh. and he was actually born buendo parte and he changed Ooh. it to Bonaparte to sound more French. Ooh, be still my beating heart. Yeah. And this guy, he died at 51. And he's one of those people where you're like, how did you get such a lot done? 
You know, I mean, it just had this intense... It's like Anna Wintour. You only slept two hours a night. Yes, honestly. Is that true? You... I just made that up. Uh, well, she probably does. Does she sleep or just cryogenically freeze? I think she's upside down in a cave somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Feed on the blood of the young and the unfashionable. <laughs> um, but yeah, he just... he It was insane. And he also tried to um, fight against the French for Corsica to gain Italian independence at one point. And then I guess he just thought, fuck it, if you can't beat him, join him. Um well, he was obviously the French emperor, leader. But how did he Crusader. become the yeah, emperor? There, yeah. What was the story? Well, he was actually born into quite a modest family. He wasn't like an aristocrat or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were from like minor nobility ofs. Um, <laughs> oh, just, oh, just minor yeah. nobility. <laughs> he was, I've, I was reading about him today and I was like, he was basically the Eva Perron of like <laughs> French military. Because he, he was like born you know fairly modestly like I said and then he was a when the revolution broke out he was just like an officer in the French army and he basically rose through the ranks really really quickly oh like Russell Crowe and Gladiator yeah and like became a general at 24 oh no yeah I know and um, by the time he was 26 I think he was even he was like you know, I don't know, an Uber general, just trying to look through what he was called there. I always think with these things, though, like whenever anyone's like, oh, yeah, this guy did this by the age of like 23, it's like there were fewer people then. There's yeah. seven billion of us now. Way less competition then. So. Yeah, that's true. And they didn't have Netflix, so they had way more time on their hands. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, he, he basically obviously became a huge military power and took over loads of Europe and then we beat him at the Battle of Waterloo and hence Nelson's Column uh, is the extremely short That was very short, yes. Version. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not going to bore you with Napoleon's battles and losses and sure. basically... That's man he, stuff. He, yeah, he rose to like insane military power and was a big bloke despite apparently being a small bloke. But I looked into the more fascinating, like I said, he's got this amazing life where he's done loads and it was very romantic and like intense and um so he was actually a Corsican nationalist very very weird even though he's obviously synonymous with like the French empire and being French um and he tried to overthrow the French rule he called the French monsters who were the enemies of free men and like when you think of Napoleon because I actually I feel bad for saying this um I was like, oh, he was almost like the Hitler before Hitler, right? I, yeah, I was like, was he a baddie? Yeah, you think of him as like a tyrant, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I think. That's how we're... I kind of did, but yeah. But that's very... That's the propaganda working. We're, oh. we're British, you're Irish, I know, but like, yeah, we're the op- on the opposite side, basically. Um, but that he was actually... I mean, don't get me wrong, we've all learned that men in positions of power have probably got some bad secrets, <laughs> and he had a lot of affairs. <laughs> but... So did his wife, which I'll get to, who is amazing, and I might do a whole segment on her in the in the future. Oh, great! Um, but he campaigned a lot for um, religious integration. He was like raised a Catholic, but then he also um, gave Jews like equal rights. Uh, went in his um, kingdom, <laughs> yeah. uh, and he also like studied Islam and was really interested in Islam. Um, and it's basically like quite you know very ahead of his time and he was also the first one to write uh, like unified laws uh, so so at the time France was like oh the top part of France is ruled by these people and it's got these laws and it slightly differs in this section of the country and he, he started the system that we use today which is like you know the law of the land basically like a national law like in the whole of the UK this is illegal that's illegal etc mm-hmm. he, he started all that oh wow what a hot hot guy yeah he, like there was a lot of good stuff about him so I feel like 
his smear campaign has, has trickled through 400 years. Yeah. So Napoleon's wife, Josephine de Bernay, <laughs> a bit like Bernay's sauce, um, was this incredible woman that has an, an amazing life story and I feel like she'd be sort of a feminist icon today. Um, and she, do you know the phrase, not tonight, Josephine? Yes. Yeah. And, I, and I knew it was related to Napoleon, but I didn't really know what it was about. So again, it's like propaganda by, I don't know if it's the Brits, but basically his enemies that suggested that like basically he had no sex drive. You know, oh. like he was turning her down for sex and he was, uh, you know, he was wimpy or whatever. And like yeah. not tonight, Josephine. Originates from absolutely nothing. Wow. It was just all to try and make him seem small. and. It sounds like something that you'd see in like a political cartoon of the day, because that was very much yeah. the smear campaign tactics was those cartoons. Yeah. Memes Absolutely. Of the day. Um, so uh, he married uh, Josephine. Uh, she was married before into aristocracy. And then basically her husband wanted nothing to do with her. And so she seduced and charmed other high society men. But that didn't save her from imprisonment. And uh, the revolution swept through Paris. And her estranged husband was sent to the guillotine. She escaped execution. Uh, the day before her trial, the government was deposed. And the executions were halted. So basically she she escaped death by a hair's breadth and then became a popular socialite in Paris. Uh, <laughs> Meeting so Napoleon great. at a party in 1795. <laughs> she was 32, uh, widowed, but like a massive socialite. And uh, he was 26. And was, I know, yeah. Right. So um, so they, they wed six months later. And on the marriage certificate, she knocked four years off her age and <laughs> added 18 months to his, which made them the same age. <laughs> Just so that she was, uh, you know, didn't seem like a cradle snatcher, I guess. Um, yeah, so he never said not tonight, Josephine. So, but basically, they were like, it's also rumored that like he didn't love her and all this. But apparently, um, when he found out she died, he like locked himself away for days and he wouldn't he wouldn't talk to anyone. This was like when they're older, and I think they were actually split up or divorced. It was when he was in exile. Um, I think he was like madly in love with her, basically. But she was like this absolute sort of. Not a t- she wasn't a tyrant. She was just like this extremely strong, sexual Ugh, woman that was like... So turned on. Yeah, I know. It <laughs> was like, it. fuck it. I, I almost got my head chopped off. Let's, I can shag who I want. <laughs> I remember their relationship was a very big subplot of the Sex and City movie because um, at the beginning, Carrie is reading the Napoleon Josephine love letters. Oh, yeah. Ever mine, ever thine, ever ours. Yeah. And uh, then later on, she checks her spam folder and uh, Big Head emailed her this typed out Napoleon letter. (laughs) And that's why they got back together. Yeah. After she put a bird in her head. (laughs) Yeah, so basically she had loads of affairs in in France while he was like fighting in her name around Europe. (laughs) He once also wrote a romance novel. Napoleon did. This is maybe my favourite fact. Napoleon wrote a porno. That you can buy on Amazon. No. Yeah, it's called Clisson et Eugene. Yeah, he wrote a little, a short romantic novella just before he met Josephine about a young soldier falling in love. And it was never published during his lifetime. Um, and then it was like divided up afterwards and sold to auction houses as like little, little serialised segments. He didn't self-publish. Um, no, he didn't. I feel like it's all this, all this bloody army in. Haven't published your bloody novella, have you? Uh, yeah, so, didn't you? Yeah, bloody hell. So he did all this horrible killing and stuff. Um, and <laughs> did he, he do a lot of hor- Okay, tell us about the horrible killing a bit. Like, oh, he, he did just, a lot of it. He wasn't just a goodie, was he? 
No, I mean, he was a powerful man who owned armies upon armies who, you know, took over lands that they shouldn't have done. I didn't massively look into that because that's the stuff that, I mean, it's very... It's just like, big powerful man takes over loads of land. Yeah, I want to know about the sex. How to, yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? Has loads of battles. Another thing, and I've never heard of this before, is that a lot of military leaders of yesteryear, there used to be like smear campaigns and rumours that they were afraid of cats. Because... And yeah, it's really strange. And uh, well, Napoleon was afraid of cats. Yeah, and right. and I read loads of stuff today that was like he wasn't afraid of cats. <laughs> <laughs> it's all lies. It's all lies. God, the right? campaign has really, really worked, hasn't it? Yeah, I know. And to the point where when we beat him at Waterloo, um, they were so scared that if they let him onto British soil, he would become like a martyr for the people, oh, for wow. the fighting people. That they wouldn't let. They didn't let him come onto British soil. They like kept him in a ship or on an island or something like that and then exiled him or whatever they did. <laughs> yeah, um, do you know anything else about the exile? Because I've always been intrigued by that. They just put him on an island. Where was the island? Uh, it was in... So he was exiled as part of the Treaty of Fontainebleau, Fontainebleau. in 18... Yeah, I've been there. Have Sorry. you? Yeah, carry on. On April the 11th in 1814, yeah, they exiled him to the sovereign island of Elba. And when he was there, how James Bond is this? What sort of James Bond gone wrong? Also, Idris Elba, James Bond. Oh, yeah. Connection. Well, he's not James Bond, is he? No, but, you know, he, oh, was, he was... Daniel Craig's doing it for... name was going around. One <laughs> billion dollars. Um, yeah, so they, they sent him to exile on the island of Idris Elba. <laughs> what an exile that would be. You know? um, he tried to attempt suicide because he'd been carrying a poisonous pill with him ever since his failure in Russia, and he finally took it on April the 12th, so like a day after. But the pill must have lost its potency with age, like the lewds in Wolf of Wall Street, (laughs) Um, and it made him really violently ill, but it didn't kill him. Oh, yeah. And there's loads of um, rumours that he died of like arsenic poisoning and stuff, but the reality is that he probably died of stomach cancer when he was 51. Aww. Was he so? Where where's he like buried and stuff? Because I'm sure I've seen his grave or something. Did they go and pick him up once he was uh, once they knew he was dead? He was buried in 1840 in Les Invalides, Paris. Aww. Les Invalides. Les Invalides. Les Invalides. <laughs> <laughs> I've still got it. God, you're so fucking French, Anna. Yeah. <laughs> nice soft ladies who like to stay in shape fit into our clothes and not cough up chunks of lung every time we go up a staircase (laughs) we are however also very aware that an evil multi-billion dollar industry is built around the idea of us hating ourselves so much that we stay fit which is obviously not good feminism so our question for this smart lesson is how do we get fit in a way that is healthy sensible and definitely not us pandering to the global conspiracy to keep us poor and miserable Yes, like, I can't stop doing this voice. (laughs) (laughs) Just keep doing it, Frederick. When I buy a pair of running shoes for £120, how can I tell that these running shoes are expensive because they're really good for my feet and my knees, and not just good for making my bum look slightly nicer? And also, what if your bum looking slightly... I'm going to stop it, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) Also, what if your bum looking slightly nicer in the, like, special Skechers Tony shoes is better aerodynamically for your running? Like, I very... I struggle to see where the line is between, like, this is a good thing and it's expensive for a reason... With like, this has just got a weird little air bubble and a pink 
ring around it. Why do they have air bubbles? Sketches are shit. What about um, leggings as well? There's so many fancy leggings with like transparent bits oh, for sweat to come out. Oh, the transparent panels, yeah. Are, are they, they actually, feminism? Are they feminism? I don't know. <laughs> do I want to have sweaty knees? I mean, the whole kind of yoga pant industry is just like, you know, am I doing yoga because I enjoy it and it's good for me? Or am I doing it because it's an appropriation of Indian culture? And I'm basically a tiny fit Hitler when I do it. <laughs> <laughs> Fittler. Fittler. <laughs> Fittler on the roof doing a fucking morning yoga class. <laughs> Fittler on the roof. Also, I've still never understood. Why would you spend any money... I mean, any money on stuff to go to a yoga class. I mean, okay, I'm going to just, okay, I'm going to mount a defence. and I'm not even going to be hysterical about it. The reason is, is because you want to go to yoga, right? But you want to like walk around with the kind of yoga glow afterwards. You want to feel very goop, yeah. very green tea, very purified. So you want to go in a nice cloth and then you want to wear <laughs> that cloth for the rest of the day. And like have that kind of like oh I'm just oh, wearing okay. some like tight fitting clothes oh, and like I was just going to yoga and yeah, now I'm gonna get yeah. my coffee. There's nothing I enjoy more than going to a morning meeting and then being like sorry I'm still in my yoga clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a stay bitch. I guess I used to buy loads of cool like sprinting and Adidas gear and stuff when I was like doing athletics. So, yeah, fitness yeah. wear is very cool now. Yeah. It's very, very cool. It's very addictive as well. Because once you've bought like a fancy pair of leggings or a fancy top or whatever, it's really hard to go back to non-fancy stuff. Yeah. Like your shit Topshop leggings, which you cut the feet off of or whatever. Because <laughs> um, then you're like, oh, I don't feel like I'm really mentally prepared. It's just such right. a myth that the whole industry has sold to us that like, well, you're not going to run fast if uh, you don't have go faster stripes on your calves, are you? Yeah, completely. Like, oh, no, I guess not. Like, it is true because I've just slagged it off, but also when I was really into dance, I used to have all the dance gear. Of so course yeah, you do, mate. yeah, I had like the full leg warmers, tights cut off, looking shabby chic, pineapple like fishnets. I was like in fame. I cried when I went to see Fame. Ah, it's like about my life. And I was literally like, this is my life. I want to be a dancer. I feel like um, we spent most of the smart lesson talking about uh, sports clothing, which is interesting, and maybe that's kind of the conspiracy that. Actually, sports is just sports clothing. Maybe when oh. we're in sports clothes, they just brainwash us to think that we've sweated. You know, I've maybe never, they're just sweaty clothes. I've never been to a football match, so I can't even guarantee anything is happening there. <gasps> yeah, maybe it's just lots of men sitting around comparing shoes. I've never been to a Zumba class. Maybe, maybe they don't a, happen. <laughs> maybe they don't happen. I've never been to one. And my housemate is a personal trainer, but I'm never with him in the gym. I just see him come home in that man thing where they wear leggings under shorts now. Which we've decided is hot. It is hot, fair. Yeah. 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 Maybe he's got an office job. Maybe no sport happens ever. And every time someone goes to the gym, they're just going somewhere to buy more leggings or to talk <gasps> about some leggings. Yes. Yeah. We're all being brainwashed. Shit, man. I like it. More leggings. Yeah, more brainwashing. Great, so we're all off to spend £250 on tights that we'll never go to the gym in. Thank you for listening to our absolute nonsense this week. Thank you to Harry Harris for doing our jingles, to Gavin Day for our logo and to Soho Radio Studios for the recording space. If you want to help us buy one Adidas sports bra between us, please do send us some money on ko-fi.com. Your £3 could help support 90% of Alex's tits. And 10% of mine. (laughs) Bye. Bye! Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.